Good morning, Anthem Church. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here and just uh, grateful to get to bring God's word to you this morning. The, each week we gather as God's people to remember and realign our lives with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And one of the major ways we do that in addition to singing and, and baptism that we got to do in the first service and uh, Lord's Supper that we'll do later is that we, we hear and, and respond to the, the preached word of God. And so we've been walking through the Gospel of John. In the last several weeks, we've been walking through John chapter 7, and, and this kind of section ends with John 9. And it's all kind of revolving around the Feast of Tabernacles, in, in which we see themes of Jesus being the light of the world. It's a theme that, that John touches on all throughout both his Gospel and his New Testament letters that are later in Scripture. Um, it's Also, we saw the theme of uh, the out of Jesus will come rivers of living water. Um, and so we see um, multiple themes in this uh, Feast of Tabernacles that we're going to see come up here in John chapter 9. Because what we see in John chapter 9 is actually this is post-Feast of Tabernacles. We don't know exactly when it is, but it's sometime between the Feast of Tabernacles and the Feast of Dedication. All right, the Feast of Dedication um, is going to come the next week or two as we hit John chapter 10. Um, but in John 9, it's sometime between that, but it's still part of this because essentially what we have here is a case study. It's a case study that, of what truly abiding in the word looks like. That's what we talked about last week, and it's a theme, once again, you can trace all through John because John has this habit of, of kind of saying something and then saying it again and then repeating it in a different way, and he does this over and over, and he kinda, it's this kind of iterative type of thing. But... When I say case study, this is what I mean. It's, it's, in John chapter 9, the story is taking abstract ideas we've been talking about and make them concrete in an individual experience. Saying the abstract and making it concrete for us so that we can see it lived out. Why would, we, why would John be doing that? Why is he just repeating these same themes over again? Well, just a question for you. Have you ever known something theoretically um, but, but not really known it, like, like to know something deeply, to like enjoy it in its fullest sense. Jonathan Edwards, who was a, um, a pastor, a, a significant preacher in the early, in, in one of the first great awakenings in America, um, he was uh, president at Princeton uh, for a time, and, and he wrote this. He said, there's a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and having a sense sense of the loveliness and beauty of that holiness and grace. There's a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of its sweetness. A man may have the former that knows not how honey tastes, but a man can't have the latter unless he has an idea of the taste of honey in his mind, because you've tasted and seen it, right? You've enjoyed it. So there's a difference between believing that a person or that God is beautiful and having a sense of his beauty. So why a case study? Why do we have this story here? Not just because, well, it happened, but, but John puts it here specifically because he wants us not to merely know facts that Jesus is the light of the world and out of him flow rivers of living water, but that he wants us to taste and see that Jesus is good. He wants us to fully enjoy Jesus, to fully enjoy God, 
He wants us to know what abiding looks like in the life of the man in this text so that we will enjoy God fully. In fact, this is one of the reasons he writes the whole book, right? It's so that you may believe in the Son of God and that by believing, you may have the fullness of life. So this is the purpose why John writes, is so that we might have fullness of life, full enjoyment of God and the life that he gives. And so here's the big idea in John chapter 9. Enjoying God fully requires abiding in his word. These two ideas are inextricably linked. Enjoying God fully requires abiding in his word. And I know maybe you're sitting there today, you've been here the past several weeks, and you're like, are we really we really going to talk about this abiding in the word idea again? Not only are we going to talk about it today, John chapter 14, Jesus talks about it, and then other places he's going to talk about it. So just like, just get ready, like buckle up. We're going to continue to be in this place, all right? Because, because a lot is at stake in this. And here's my question back, if that's what you're feeling this morning. How many of us actually abided in the word well this week? We've been talking about it a lot. We talked about it. That's all we talked about last week. How many of us just in the past week abided in the word well? Or did we allow busyness and um, the hecticness of life to get in the way of allowing us to spend time with Jesus in his word and allowing that word to go with us as we're going about the day in and day out life? Not just having a quiet time, but allowing the word to abide in us moment by moment throughout the day. How many of us did that well? It's is not to be a guilt trip, okay? Because look, like I stand here and, and preach this message not because I have this down, not because I did this well in this last week, but because I believe I need, like God wants me to hear this message just as much as he wants you to hear this message this morning. And so that's not a guilt trippy question. That's just a question for us to reckon with like, okay, yeah, you may have this idea of what abiding in the word looks like, but do you really like believe it? and practice it and live it out, because it's for your good. And so we're going to talk about it again. I heard an educator this week at a training I was uh, helping lead share this teaching philosophy. He said, we need to, you need to tell people what you're going to tell them, then you need to tell them, and then you need to tell them what you told them. Well, John really captures that, okay? He does that over and over again, all right? John chapter one, he, he talks about Jesus as the light of the world. He talks about how Jesus is the word, all right? He talks about how Jesus is the word made flesh and, and all of these themes, and then he teases them out. So he tells us what we're gonna, he's gonna tell us, and then he tells us through the story of Jesus' life, and then he wraps it by telling us what he told us. And so that's what I'm gonna do here today, all right? Um, because, and this is why. It's not to bore us to tears, it's not to try to beat a dead horse, but really it's this, it's that far too much is at stake in whether or not we get this idea and really be a people, both individually and as Anthem Church, that abide in the word of God, that persevere in it, that cling to it, that walk in his word moment by moment, that don't try to do this life on our own, but rather we're clinging to his word in the, the ups and downs of everyday life. Far too much is at stake. Our enjoyment of the good news of the gospel, its full richness of life, and, and, and the, the depths of God is at stake in abiding in his word. We've got to get, and this is why he comes back to it and he tells this story of Jesus' life. 
so that we would enjoy God fully by abiding in his word. And so, as we walk through this story this morning, what we see are, are three essential means for enjoying God fully if we, are to, if we abide in his word. There's three means that Jesus has for us for enjoying God fully if we will abide in his word. All right? In each of these, we enjoy God more and more, but only as we abide. All right? So we're going to unpack those means, and then we're going to talk about the, like, what's it look like to abide in, the myth, in, in regards to that means, all right? So first off, Jesus, the first means is that Jesus reveals God personally, all right? Jesus comes to us, and, and, and for us, like, no, Jesus isn't in the flesh today in front of us, but we have this word that is God's perfect and errant sufficient word to, to, to place before us Jesus, for us to be able to see Jesus. And so Jesus reveals God personally so that we might enjoy God fully. Like Jesus was sent to make God known. John chapter one, the word, talking about Jesus, was in the beginning, or in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Jesus is God and he's sent, it says later in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so Jesus reveals God personally so we can enjoy him fully. And and so the Father sends the Son so that we might see him as he dwells among us, not just above us. Jesus reveals God personally because he dwelt among us, not just above us. This is one of the unique claims about Christianity, that God became human, fully human. He didn't take away from his deity, all right, it's not like he just added, he took away 50% of his deity and he added 50% of humanity. No, he is fully God and fully man. And it's one of the mysteries of our faith and the depths of the riches of the fullness of God that we can mine for all of eternity. But, but it's the, one of the unique things about Christianity is that God did not stay far removed from us. He is a God who can be known and he communicates that most clearly when Jesus reveals himself personally by coming and dwelling among us. And we see it in the story, like really clearly. The text last week in, verse, in chapter 8 said, um, Jesus makes this crazy claim at the end of the, the, the passage. Um, and the people feel it's crazy because they, they pick up stones to throw at him in light of it. He says this, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. That I am the Jews recognize it immediately as the, the name of God that he gave to Moses as he was about to lead God's people out of the promised land. It's essentially God saying, I am who I will show myself to be in the way that I work with you and among you. And, and so Jesus is claiming that title and he's saying, look, I'm God. I'm the transcendent God come in the flesh before you. Jesus is the transcendent God become imminent. The God who's far off came near to us in Jesus. And so we see that he dwells among us, not just above us. And, and it's in this text that we see the I am in the flesh, like with people, revealing God personally to an individual. We'll get to that in a moment, actually. I want to hit a couple other things. One, Jesus reiterates this theme Again, that he's mentioned multiple times, Jesus is the light of the world. In verse 5, it says, as long as I am in the world, 
I am the light of the world. In other words, let's just remind ourselves what we were what we've seen with that, that he's saying, I am the ultimate relation, uh, revelation of who God is in every word and every deed. And, he, and I've come so that you can see, so that people could see God for who he is and see themselves for who they are and their need for me. All right? And so he is the light of the world. He's bringing light into darkness. Not just into the darkness of the world in general, but into the darkness of our individual lives. And this is what we see in verses 39 to 41. This is part of what it means for him to be light of the world. For judgment I came into the world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. He's coming to bring sight to the blind. To those of us that are willing to recognize our blindness and our darkness apart from him, he is coming to bring sight to us. For those of us that refuse to acknowledge that we're in darkness and that we need the light, his light will only make, lead them into further darkness. That's weighty, I know. But Jesus came to bring light to everyone. If only we would receive it. Recognize our own need for it. And so Jesus is the light of the world. He's revealing God perfectly to us and he's come so that we can see. But he's also, we see that from him flow rivers of living water. All right? That's what he talked about in, in chapter 7, this drawing on this theme of the Feast of Tabernacles, that, that he, as God, doesn't just produce water out of the rocks out as, as God did in the wilderness, but he's actually bringing spiritual water to us, rivers of living water through Jesus. And so he makes that claim in chapter 7, and then we see it illustrated here. You're like, where? Well, it's a little weird, but... Let's just see it, all right? Verse six, having said these things, he spit on the ground. He spit on the ground. John records this kind of weird way that Jesus provides this healing in order for us to see what he's getting at, in order for us to see in like hard, like real life, like what Jesus is doing. Because as he spits, he's giving us a word picture once again of how from him flows life. And just as in the beginning, like, like in Genesis chapter 2, God takes the dust of the earth and he breathes the spirit of life into it and creates man in the beginning. So here we see Jesus doing that. Out of him flow rivers of living water into mere dust and we see life come as a result as the man rubs it on his eyes. See, he who created man out of the dust of the ground recreates eyes from the dust of the ground. Isn't that amazing? Like, it's mind-blowing. That's what Jesus is doing here is to show us I, he is the great I am. The one who created all things has come and he's right in front of us in Jesus Christ. He who used the dust of the ground to create man has now recreated eyes with the dust of the ground by taking and giving us this word picture of the spit and the rivers of living life. Once again, the, the spirit coming out from Jesus, breathing life and restoration and healing power in his people. And so God reveals himself, or Jesus reveals himself personally by dwelling among us, not just above us, but he also does it by engaging individuals, not just ideologies. All right, he engages individuals, not just ideologies. And this is, 
really one of the stark contrasts that we see in the, if we were to read all of chapter 9, which we, real, we will read chunks of the rest of it that Matt jumped over earlier. We'll get to that. But what we see over and over again is that uh, the way Jesus engages with the man and the way the disciples and the Pharisees engage with the man are complete and total opposites. Jesus engages him as an individual, a person, a real human being. Everyone else in this story engages with the man as just an, an ideology, someone to argue with, someone to glean something from in order to go after Jesus. See, what we see here is that as, God, as Jesus is revealing God to us, that God is concerned with each and every one of us. He's concerned with us as individuals. He's not just here to provide, with, provide us with the right framework for living life. Though he is, it's part of being the light of the world. He provides the right framework for living life. But that's not all he's here to do. He's also here for a personal relationship with us, with individuals. See, what we see in Jesus here is that he cared for him as an individual. Verse 1, as he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth. He saw a man blind from birth. The disciples immediately, they go this. They say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? His disciples immediately just want to engage him as like this thing that's out there. They're like, how do we wrestle with it theologically? How do we think about this, this suffering that he's experiencing? And it's this thing that's removed from the fact that this is a human being that has suffered blindness from birth. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Like this man, it's not his sin or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. That God cares about this man. And Jesus shows that, that the father, while he has a unique purpose for him and cares for him, Jesus shows that care then in providing an intimate miracle. Like it, it's... He has several miracles in the Gospel of John, and, and in, in many of them, he just speaks and the miracle happens. Or he tells someone to do something, and they go and they do it and come back. But here, like Jesus touches the man to show this like intimate, individual care that he has. As he's revealing God to us, he's showing the heart of God, that God loves you, <laughs> like created you, and he created me uniquely he loves us as individuals and is pursuing us as individuals. Not, like he's not here to conquer us. As many in our world try to conquer one another through arguments and ideologies. So we, we see Jesus cared for him as an individual. And we see that care come back up at the end of the text in verse 35 where he pursues after the man. After he's cast out. But what we see from the disciples and Pharisees is that that they engage with the man as an ideology rather than as an individual. They're not concerned for him. They're just they're trying, to, trying to move forward their own agenda, trying to deal with their own personal stuff by like, dealing with the man as an object rather than a person. So the disciples talk about his sin or his parents. But the Pharisees, they, they, they don't go to the man and like, the Pharisees and the, his neighbors and those kinds of things that we read about in this text, like, like they, should, they knew this man. They knew him as the beggar that had been blind. And rather than celebrating with him, right, like that would have been the natural reaction, right? This guy you know that you clearly have seen him walk around blind from birth. You're, 
rather than celebrating with him, you're you're cynically looking at whether it's him or not. Like it's such a, it's like it's so strange their reaction, right? But it's because they're not concerned for him. They're caught up in their own world. They're caught up in the arguments that they can win. They're caught up in, they don't want Jesus, like, they don't want anything to do with Jesus, and so they're going to use this man to accomplish their own agenda. And so they ask him questions like, well, how did Jesus heal you? It's like, who cares? Like, I can see, right? Like, I don't know how he did it. He did it with some mud, and it was weird, right? He touched me, and then he had me go wash. Like, it was weird, but that's how he did it. And, and they're all concerned with that. They're concerned with what Jesus did on the Sabbath, Right? It's, they're not concerned for the man. They're concerned with their arguments and their ideologies. How often is this us on Twitter or in conversations we get into even with friends and people we know that we are just about winning an argument rather than about caring for them as an individual? See, the one, what we see in Jesus is that the one who sees, sees individuals, not just ideologies. Yes, the light of the world has come to, to set a right, to push out the darkness that are the, the falsehoods in our world that we encounter day in and day out. Jesus has come to push that back, but he's also come for you and for me. And he died so that, that all might live in him. And so Jesus reveals God, and he reveals a God who cares for us as individuals, who sees us as individuals. And and it models for us as we we think in this next segment we'll get to in a moment about going into the world, that just like Jesus, like seeing people, see people. Like if we truly are following after Jesus and abiding in his word, if he is giving us sight, then we need to see people and not just their arguments. Seeing people see people for who they are and engage them not as objects, not as arguments, but as people. And so Jesus reveals God personally to us here, all right, by dwelling among us, by engaging us individually, all right, but, but Jesus does this so that we can fully enjoy God, right? But... Enjoying God requires abiding in his word. In other words, if we're going to enjoy Jesus being revealed to us personally, we've got to obey the word, not merely know it. We've got to obey the word, not merely know it. That's one aspect of what abiding looks like. All right? If we're going to enjoy God fully, we've got to obey the word, not merely know it. Where do we see that? In verse 6, Jesus spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva. He anoints the man's eyes with the mud, and, and he says to them, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seen. We don't have any record of this man's interactions with Jesus, with his response to how weird it is that this guy just came up and put mud on his eyes, right? But like, he obeys. And what we've got to realize is that apart from abiding in Jesus' word or obeying rather than just hearing the word, this guy would have just walked around with muddy eyes. <laughs> like, and it would have been really weird, right? Like, either he would have walked around with muddy eyes for a while until he could find his way to some other source of water, and, and people would have been looking at him like, why in the world is, like, it would have been judging him, like, what's going on? Like, it's, it would have been this really weird experience, right? It just would have been, though, like, mud. If, if he wouldn't have 
obeyed Jesus' word and gone to the pool of Siloam, walked through the crowds with people wondering what in the world he's doing. If he wouldn't have done that, then he wouldn't have experienced the healing of Jesus. All right? Because it was following all of Jesus' word to him that led him. It was the, the trust and obedience that are both evident here in him following through on that that allows him to enjoy the revelation that Jesus has given him of who God is. And so we've got to respond rightly to the word. Like if we're going to, going to enjoy God fully, we've got to respond rightly, listening to, not just listening to, but applying it, even when we don't have all the answers. And this guy didn't have all the answers, right? I mean, we don't see him you know, asking Jesus, okay, like, why are you doing this to me, or anything like that. But then later, we, we see um, they ask him how his eyes were open, and he gives them. He says, well, he made mud, anointed my eyes, and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. He doesn't have all the answers of like how that worked, right? Like was the, what was special about the mud? Or, I mean, because Jesus, Jesus gives sight to others without using mud. So why does he do that here? He doesn't have all the answers to that. And then they say to him, where is he? And he said, I don't know. As Jesus was revealed to him, he doesn't have all the answers, and yet he listened and responded to the word. He listened and obeyed the word. And that's what we're called to do. As Jesus reveals God personally, if we're going to enjoy God fully through that, then we've got to obey the word ourselves. But our enjoyment of God doesn't just end with us. It leads us to the next context in which um, verses 13 to 34 where as we experience the light of Jesus, that he is the light of the world, we actually then also become the light of the world. His light in us going into the world. See, because the next means by which Jesus leads us to enjoy God fully is he sends us purposefully. Jesus sends us purposefully. How does he do that? One, he, he sends us to engage the world with the word. This is what it looks like to be sent purposefully. We're sent to engage the world with his word. Verse 3 says, It's not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. God has a unique purpose for each one of us. In our unique experiences, backgrounds, families, talents, gifts, likes, dislikes, all of that, like God has wired us and uniquely positioned us in our experiences and our time and place in this world and in history so that we can be sent to display God's works in a unique way to those around us. And so we, just like the man is sent into the world, so too we, like have this same purpose, to display the works of God, to engage the world in the way we live as light in the darkness Jesus sends us purposefully, and this is a means for us to enjoy God. We'll see how in a moment, but this is a means. And then we see, again, that not only is he, uh, we see this theme of being sent again later in, in verse 7. It said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. Why does John include that there? He doesn't include it earlier. When he brings up the pool of Siloam, he includes it here. Because when Jesus sends him to the pool of Siloam, after he washes, he's now sent as well. Jesus was sent by the Father into the world to bring light, and now we, when we receive the washing 
and regeneration that Jesus brings by the power of the Spirit of God, we are now sent into the world on purpose to gauge the world, to be the light of the world. Jesus says, for as, long as I am in the li- for as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And what he says elsewhere in the Gospels is that he's sending us and that he calls us the light of the world. And so he sends us purposefully so we can enjoy God fully. And, and yet, as we think about being sent into the world, most of us don't think, oh, that's a way that I enjoy God. <laughs> right? Because evangelism, that's stressful. Or like... Even just having to like go and serve others, like that's, that's you know, I, yes, I, I want to be good at that. I want to I love and serve others, but, but I don't really enjoy God in that, right? Like that, that stuff's hard. Right? We don't think of enjoyment of God in those things, mainly because we're like, well, what if I don't have all the answers? <laughs> what if I get into a conversation about Jesus and I'm sharing the light about him and, and, and I don't know how to answer their questions, Well, here's a little bit of good news on the front end of this. Just like what we see in the man, we need to share what we know and admit what we don't. Share what we know and admit what we don't. All throughout this text, that's what the man does. All right, in verses 8 through 12, we see him simply sharing what he knows when he's asked, right? His experience, verse 10, they said to him, how are your eyes open? He said, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. So he shared what he knew. But then they asked him, where is he? He said, I don't know. All right. And, and multiple times throughout these next texts that we're about to read, it's the same kind of thing. He doesn't try to just make it up on the fly and act like he has all the answers in order to win an argument. Because the man is embodying what being sent by Jesus looks like engaging people as individuals, right? And so he, so he doesn't try to overcome them in, with an argument, but rather he admits when he doesn't know it, the answer. And we need to feel the freedom too. Like going on mission for Jesus, being sent by Jesus as the light of the world, like you should be freed up from this passage to simply share what you know and admit what you don't and say, I don't really know the answer to that, but like allow me to go and, can I go and, and just like maybe ask my pastors or study God's word a little bit more and then come back to you and we can have a further conversation about that? You'll be amazed by like how far that will go with someone if you'll actually humble yourself and do that kind of thing and how you actually allow to continue the conversation where, rather than ending it with an argument of, well, that's just how it is. <laughs> now that doesn't get you anywhere. And so we, we're sent in the world on purpose and, and, and the good news is is like, it's not all on our shoulders, right? Jesus is the, the one who's the light in us. We don't have to know all the answers. But as we do that, as we do that, we face the need to endure the world. As we engage the world, we're going to face the need to endure the world. Trials and tribulations are going to come our way as we engage the world with the word. That sounds enjoyable, right? That sounds like, oh, that's where I want to be. That's where I'm going to enjoy God, right? Is right in the middle of that endurance. Well, actually, that's what we see happen. All right, so, but let's talk about what that enduring looks like, and then we're going to see how Jesus unveils himself further and allows us to experience and enjoy God even more as we lean into having to endure, as we lean into having to persevere through the suffering of trials and tribulations in the world. But what's that look like? Enduring 
with in the world is going to lead to us being disregarded. We're going to be disregarded at times. Verses 13 through 18. This is the part that we haven't read yet. It says, They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. Look, I mean, see, like, they don't even... They don't even deal with him and what he just said. They've already shifted gears to talking about Jesus again. It's like, okay, tell us what we need to know. All right, now we're going to have this conversation. And they begin to argue here. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they begin to argue. And then they go, they said again to the blind man. And they go back to him and they say, what do you say about him? Right, once again, they're, they're not really addressing him. They're just wanting something out of him. Since he has opened your eyes. And he said, he is a prophet. And the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight. They disregarded him. They disregarded his experience. They disregarded what knowledge he did have. Essentially, they were disregarding him as a fool or as gullible. They're disregarding the legitimacy of his experience. And for some of us, you may have experienced that as you share the gospel, as you seek to live as light in your workplace or in your school, you've experienced being disregarded for your faith, for being naive or gullible or whatever it may be. People don't really believe that you've been transformed as you share your testimony. We're going to face that. But the things we have to endure go much deeper than that. The things we're likely to have to endure Go not just to the level of being disregarded, but to the level of possibly being disowned. Maybe some of you have experienced that. Here's how the man experienced it here. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age. He will speak for himself. See, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. They didn't want anything to do with him, right? They were disowning their son because of his association with Jesus. For shame of association, for fear of losing status, for being put out themselves, they wanted to be able to stay in the in-group, or as we often say, on the, the right side of history, or whatever it may be. But, but Jesus is making clear here, we're going to have to endure being disowned, and maybe you have as well. Maybe you've had to be disowned by your parents. I don't know. I know that there are some here in our church that have. Maybe it's friends or coworkers that have pushed you away. You used to be close, but, but now as you begin to follow Jesus more and more and to take more seriously this word, they begin more and more to distance themselves from you. That's painful. It's painful. 
how does this lead us to enjoying God? Once again, we'll see in a moment, but there's one more level of what we're going to have to endure at times. And that's we're going to have to endure being disqualified from society as a whole. Potentially, from certain sections or whatever it may be. Like this, these are the kinds of things that, that as we're sent into the world, we're going to have to endure as we cling to the word. So verse 24 says, For the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. It's kind of ironic that they say that because they're, they're just kind of exhibiting their blindness themselves to the fact of what Jesus had said earlier, that this man is here to display the works of God to the world around them. So they're missing it still. Anyway, they go on to say, we know that this man is a sinner. Once again, not talking to them about him, but about Jesus. And he answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I've told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? You know that I had to just be like, just right there, all right? So sometimes, it, you know, a little bit of like, uh, yeah, sarcasm is always fun, all right? So I think he knew what he was doing there. Um, and clearly they felt it because it says, and they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God had spoken to Moses. But what they don't know is that, yes, God spoke to Moses, but he spoke to Moses about Jesus. And the, the Old Testament is pointing forward to Jesus as much as the rest of the New Testament is all pointing to Jesus. And so they're missing it. Once again, they're showing their blindness, even in this conversation Find my place here, all right. Uh, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And the man answered, why, that's an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? And they cast him out. They cast him out. They disqualified him for answers that did not fit their agenda. They cast him out of their, their religious circles, their social circles. And we see this today, we call it cancel culture, right? cancel people because answers don't fit our agenda. And we've got to recognize that as we hold to this word, like we're not to just be brash for brash's sake. We're not to just be like this, you know, something that is the, the gospel is a stumbling block, right? The gospel is offensive, but we're not to be offensive just by the way we live our lives, but rather when the, the gospel, when we take this gospel forth, this word forth, it is going to be offensive to people. And we may be canceled. We may be disqualified. Are we ready to endure that? Well, as we've been talking about this whole time, and feel the weight of that endurance, none of that sounds like enjoying God fully. But it's actually through sending us into the world to engage the world with the word, and then to endure the world with the word, 
that we reach a new level of enjoying God. We, we, not like a video game level, okay? All right, that's not what I'm talking about. But like we, we, we begin to mine the depths of the riches of God's goodness and grace and his mercy and his comfort for us. Because when we go into the world, when we engage the world, and we don't just try to escape it and protect ourselves and rely on ourselves to provide life, when we do that, when we abide in the word instead, even as we have to endure all these things, that endurance is actually an essential experience, an essential means for God to allow us to enjoy him fully. And so if we simply try to escape the world, we're going to miss out on the fullness of what God has for us in Jesus. How is that? How does he use that endurance? Well, it's the third means that he has for us, and it's that Jesus comforts pastorally. As we are facing these things we have to endure, as we are experiencing deep pain, being disowned or disqualified, being disregarded, as we experience those things similar to what the man experiences, we will learn to enjoy Jesus deeper as he comes to us and comforts us pastorally. See, it's here Right, as we begin to shift to verse 35, that we see that abiding in the world, or abiding in the word, rather, not in the world, abiding in the word actually leads to activity in the world. So we don't just, we don't just abide in the word, kind of like off to the side, away from the world, and then you know, we go do things in the world, and, and then we come back to like abiding over here, and it's just it's separate. But our abiding in the word leads us to take the word with us into the world and get active in sharing the gospel, to get active in doing good deeds, loving our neighbor and loving God in the midst of everyday life. And it's then, as we're active in the world, that we're, we're led right back to abiding in the word again and clinging to it because that's our only hope. Because as we endure the things we're going to have to endure in the world, as we're active in the world, then, then we, the only hope we have is to abide, to find the comfort of Jesus coming to us. And so it's this cycle that builds our enjoyment of God that we've got to have day in and day out of abiding in the word, active in the world abiding in the world and active in the world, and it's that that leads both us and others, as they see the light in us, to full enjoyment in God. How, does he, how do we see Jesus comforting pastorally, though? See, the end of verse 34, it says, they cast him out, and Jesus heard that they cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Jesus pursues him here. Earlier, we... we we acknowledge that, that Jesus was just simply passing through, right? And he stopped and he engaged the blind man. But here, he goes after him. Because he's been abiding in his word, and he's been active in the world, and he knows that he's had to endure what he's had to endure. And when he, the man, endure, endures that, when we endure that, Jesus comes after us. He pursues us because he's the good shepherd, which is where we're going next week, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. But he pursues us with the word, He gives the man a greater understanding of who he is. He says, I am the Son of Man. Verse 37, he says, you have seen him, and it's he who's speaking to you. And so he pursues him with the word. And as the man is reeling from having to endure, Jesus brings the word to comfort him, to provide the salve and the healing from the bumps and the bruises that he's getting while he's active in the world. And he'll do that for us too. Because Jesus knows and possesses exactly what we need in this word. It doesn't prevent pain. 
Let's be clear. It doesn't prevent pain, but he provides what we need to address our pain and to find a deeper and fuller enjoyment of life in God. And on top of pursuing us with the word, he also transforms us through the word. Verse 38, we see this response from the man, his total transformation. He says, Lord, I believe, and he worships him. He worships him. It's the first time in the Gospel of John we see someone worship Jesus. Not his disciples, but the man who remains nameless. The man. First time we see someone worshiping Jesus, and it's here. After he has endured, then suddenly he's drawn to his knees as he encounters Jesus afresh, and he, he realizes like his heart and his soul and everything in his being just falls down at his knees in worship of him. Because he's been transformed. Yes, by the hard experience in the world, but also by the pastoral care that Jesus gives to him. And so Jesus comforts us pastorally so that we can enjoy God fully. Jesus reveals God personally. He sends us purposefully, and he comforts us pastorally. So that if we abide in that word, then we'll enjoy God fully. But what's that abiding look like in this case? in the comfort of pastoral care from Jesus. It's trusting in his word. It's trusting. Right? He, he merely trusts. There's nothing like amazing about what the guy does here. Right? He just simply says, I believe. He trusts in his word. Not just a head knowledge, but a real full belief in the word of God. He trusts in the word. And so what we see, what we've learned about abiding is that abiding requires Trust and obedience to the word of God. Trust and obedience to the word of God while we're engaging and enduring the world. Trust and obeying the word of God while we're enduring and engaging the world around us. Jesus offers us the opportunity to know the creator of the universe, the sustainer of our lives, the one who knows every hair on our head and every star in the heavens. He gives us that opportunity. But here's the reality if we don't respond with trust and obedience. It's what he gets at at the end here. For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. And then in verse 41, if you were blind you would have no guilt but now that you say we see your guilt remains. Because you claim to see on your own, because you say you don't need my light, your guilt remains. And Jesus is getting at this reality that through him, through Jesus, we can have fullness of life, we can have forgiveness of sin, our guilt taken away, and we can have life eternally with God, knowing him deeper and deeper into the infinite, eternal future that we have. Or if we choose to say, no, I see just fine on my own, then we'll experience judgment. And we'll spend eternity apart from God. Look, that's the place where all of us start. We are all blind. The question is, will you admit you're blind? Will you admit you're blind and that you need the light of Jesus? If you've never done that today, then, then know that like, we are all sinners, not just you. Like, we all have gone our own way and, and followed like, our own path rather than God's. And as a result, we're separated from God, and we need a life that only God can provide, and Jesus provided it. 
He lived a perfect life that you and I couldn't live. He died the death that you and I deserve to bring us back to God. And he rose from the dead three days later to prove that all of that had the power to accomplish our forgiveness and to bring us back into relationship with him. Jesus does all that for you. No matter what you've done, you don't have to get yourself back together. You don't have to say, oh, I see what I need to do. No. Like, all you got to do is say, no, Jesus, I don't see, and I need what you did for me. And he'll save you. Right here in this moment, you could do that. You could trust and obey his word by simply repenting and believing in the good news that you just heard. You don't have to get your life together because you can't get your life together on your own apart from Jesus. And for those of us that have been walking with Jesus, though, to wrap up today, I want to point out one last thing to conclude. Scholars and commentators, as they they talk about this passage, they point out the fact that the anonymous characters in the book of John were intended to allow the reader to see themselves in the story. So, see, the man is never named. It's one of a few places where, where a story hinges and, and centers upon a nameless character. In each of those, John intends for us to see ourselves in them. And so how do you see yourself in the story today? Are you enjoying God fully by abiding in his word? Are you doing that relentlessly even as you engage the world and endure the world? Or are you missing out on the full enjoyment of what God has for you because you're failing to abide Church, Anthem Church, will you, will we be a people that abide in his word by trusting and obeying it? Will we follow his world then into the world, engaging and enduring rather than escaping it so that we can be an anthem proclaiming and displaying the work of God to this city, that 1% of Columbia might be reached, that the, the restless might find renewal in Jesus Christ? Anthem, will we be a people that are like the blind man, that abide in his word, for our enjoyment of God, as well as others. Let's pray. Father, your word is good, and it is rich, and Lord, we thank you that we get to gather each week and, and spend time studying your word together, and we get to have small groups and do these things where we get to mine the riches, not so that we can have greater head knowledge, but so that we can know you. God, I pray that each of us in here would leave this place today enjoying you in a richer and new way. That we would leave this place more committed to abiding your word because we see how vital it is. We see this what's at stake in our abiding. God, I pray that you would you would allow us to you would strengthen us to abide even in the midst of this world that we live in and the chaos and the, the conflict of the culture that swirls around us. God, may, may you be made known and famous through us. For you're worthy. You're worthy of our lives. You're worth, you're worth enduring. May we abide in you. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.